good to be with you all uh, again. If you've been with us over the past two weeks, then you'll know that we're in uh, a brief pit stop in our sermon series on James, and we're uh, tackling this little bitty Old Testament book of Haggai over the course of four weeks. So if you've got a Bible uh, nearby, uh, if you can remember where the last place you saw one is, go find it, dust it off, turn to the little book of Haggai. It's right at the end of the Old Testament, just three books before you get to the Gospel of Matthew. So that might help to follow along. In our Old Testament reading from Haggai chapter 2, God speaks to his people at a turning point in their walk with him. The scene takes place, verse 10 tells us, on December 18th, 520 B.C. That's three months to the day after the Jews resumed rebuilding the temple. So it's a significant time. But it's also a significant occasion. Verse 18 shows us that Haggai is delivering his prophecy at a public ceremony. It's a high-profile occasion marking the restoration of the temple. So why bother to underline these details about the setting of Haggai's next prophecy? The point is that the Jews' covenant relationship with God is being renewed. For years, they'd neglected to rebuild God's house. They'd shirked their covenant responsibilities, and so God inflicted 16 years of bad harvest on them, just like he'd threatened to do all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, verse 22, if Israel broke covenant with him. There's a big litany of curses that are going to fall on Israel if they break covenant. This is one of them. But, and here's the point of all the details about the setting, but from this day forward, God says, I will bless you. Why? Well, because on this day, the Jews have recommitted themselves to their covenant God. So the curse for their covenant breaking is lifted. So this morning, as uh, you're watching this from home, assuming we haven't been rained out, Eight people are going to be baptized. This is a huge occasion. This is a turning point. In eight people's covenant relationship with God. When one receives the sacrament of baptism by faith, she becomes a living stone that's being built up into the spiritual temple of the church. She becomes a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. She's engrafted into the covenant people of God. What's wonderful about this passage just happening to fall on the occasion of these baptisms is that it invites us to ask a simple but profound question. What does it mean to be God's covenant people? When God calls us into the church, into this spiritual temple, this habitation for his holiness. To what exactly 
is he calling us? In the first place, God is calling us to pursue personal holiness. Look at Haggai uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Haggai talking, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. And now here's the question that Haggai asked the priests. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, does that food that's been touched become holy? So, what's going on here? The Lord has sent Haggai to pose a question to the priests about the way that offerings work. Now, Jewish priests offered different kinds of sacrifices. Remember, some were burnt offerings, where everything is burned up, nothing is left over once the animal's been burned. In other types of sacrifices, leftover meat would be returned to the person who offered it, and then they would take it away, and they'd eat it at a, at a big celebration or a festivity. But in most sacrifices, consecrated meat was given to the priests. That's the idea here. A priest has offered a sacrifice, and remember the temple's in total dereliction, right? It's not standing, so they're going to take it away home. So they wrap up the leftover meat in their cloaks, and then they maybe get back home to the kitchen, and there's a stew on the stove, and there's a bit of onion out, maybe a bit of carrot out, or whatever they would have been eating at the time, and he, he brushes up against it. And Haggai wants to know, does the holiness of the meat transfer into something that the meat comes into contact with. If I bring home holy meat, do I get holy stew? Or, or, or even more, do, do I get holy onions? Now, don't miss what Haggai's up to. He's, he's not asking some arcane question about priestly rules. He's posing a probing question that all the Jews who have gathered there need to hear and wrestle with. This is the question. Can holiness be caught? Is it contagious? And it's to that deeper, more probing question that the priests answer a resounding, no, no, holiness is not contagious. Holiness cannot be caught. When God says to his people, therefore, in Leviticus chapter 11, be holy as I am holy, He's calling them to pursue personal holiness. Haggai reiterates that principle. Holiness doesn't bleed into your life just because you spend your time around people who pursue personal holiness. Your spouse's sanctity is not just going to rub off on you. Your friend's sanctity is not just going to rub off on you. Holiness doesn't seep into your heart just because you surround yourself with holy things. In fact, the Scottish minister George MacDonald said that there is nothing so deadening to the divine as an habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. Holiness cannot be caught. It's not contagious. It must be pursued personally. 
And if you're thinking, and you're very right, that we're called to societal and corporate holiness as well, you're absolutely right. And guess where that begins? You. Your personal holiness. If you're a member of his covenant people, God is calling you to pursue personal holiness. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, shows us that absolutely no one is off the hook. Without holiness, says the author of Hebrews, no one will see the Lord. So the first question that the Holy Spirit's inviting us to ask this morning is, Am I holy? I'm not asking if you're baptized. I'm not asking if you hunger for the Eucharist. I'm not asking if you've befriended holy people or married a holy person. I'm not asking if you enjoy the aesthetic of a formal and ritual kind of holiness. I can do all this and yet merely have occupied myself with the outsides of holy things. What I'm asking is, are you holy? Are you laboring to have the mind of Christ in all things? To think God's thoughts after him? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself inwardly savoring the promises of God? Is it the promises of scripture that jump most readily to mind when you're alone? Can you point to concrete ways in which the Bible has refined your prejudices? Are you resolved to put to death every sin in your life of which you're aware and to obey every commandment to the fullest extent that you understand it, both in its negatives and in its positive implications? And to do so not tomorrow, not one day when conditions improve, and we're out from under the shadow of COVID-19. But today, are you imitating Jesus, his trust in his heavenly father, his reliance upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit, his confidence in Holy Scripture, his perfect mixture of authority and meekness? Do you mourn over your sin when you see it? Do you find yourself indulging in the little almost imperceptible beginnings of big sins? Or do you snuff those beginnings out the second that you mark their presence? Do you manifest the fruits of the Spirit? Would your family, your closest friends, look at you and say that they see in you evidence of love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you fear God? Not the way a slave fears a master. I'm not asking you if you're cowed by God. I'm asking you if you bow before God. Do you fear him the way that a son or daughter fears their heavenly father as he rules in righteousness from his throne? God calls his covenant people to be holy as he is holy. For without holiness, personal, visible, God-glorifying holiness, no one will see the Lord. God's covenant people must pursue personal holiness. It's my first point this morning. 
Now, the pursuit of holiness is not an easy task. It's an uphill slog. Because as Bishop J.C. Ryle put it, true Christianity will cost a man his sins. And, and if we're honest, we love our sins. We identify with certain of our sins so intimately that we cannot disentangle them from our core identity. We 21st century Westerners have a difficult time disentangling our nature, which God created good, from the sin that clings so closely to it and adheres to it. And we worry, quite rightly, that Christianity is going to cost us things that we don't want to give up. The problem, the error here, is that we fear that in doing so, the gospel is going to cut through us like lie cuts through grease. And in the process, it's going to destroy not only our sin, which is the truth. We fear it's going to destroy our very selves as well. So we may be quietly, privately, secretly, reluctant to pursue personal holiness. We may be deeply ambivalent about aligning our character with the character of God. We may be content with the mere outsides of holy things. And maybe this morning you recognize this reluctance in yourself. I do. Might it be that the most urgent obstacle in your walk with Christ is not the quality of the saints around you, nor the presence or lack thereof of spiritual things that edify you and nourish you? Might it be rather that the pursuit of personal holiness threatens some form of sin which has found a home in your heart of hearts? Can you sense a reluctance to pursue personal holiness? Any, any Christian who claims to have no such reluctance can have had only the smallest experience of the Christian life. If you've not gotten far enough in to experience that reluctance, you're no great saint. Reluctance to pursue holiness with one's whole heart, it's not a mark of spiritual weakness. It is an ongoing fact of the Romans chapter 7 nature of the Christian's spiritual battle. The pursuit is hard. It demands a lot. It demands everything. Which leads us to a second observation. As you're pursuing personal holiness... What else does it mean to be a member of the covenant people of God? It means, secondly, that God is calling you to root out a reluctant spirit. Look at verse 13. Haggai is still talking to the priests, and now he asks them a second question. If someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these people, anyone else, does it become unclean? Now, Haggai knows very well the answer to this. 
Numbers chapter 19 verse 11 says that anyone who touches a corpse becomes unclean. The impurity that one contracts by making contact with a corpse, it was so serious that it required a person to be put out of camp for a week before being ritually cleansed with the sprinkling of water. In fact, if Passover was going on, right, like the great big feast, they'd even have to miss the celebration of Passover. Numbers 19.22, several verses later, goes even further. It tells us that such uncleanness was contagious. Numbers 19, verse 22, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. Sounds a little bit like COVID-19, doesn't it? And sure enough, the priests, once they've heard Haggai's question, they answer verse 13. Yeah, it does. It becomes unclean. Now again, don't miss what Haggai's doing. He's, he's not asking an arcane question about priestcraft. He's asking a probing question of universal significance. Can defilement be caught? And we learn that unlike holiness, it can. And here's the key point that Haggai's making. Defilement, pollution, sin. It's more easily communicated than holiness. It is infinitely easier to slide downhill into sin than uphill into righteousness. Now Haggai goes on to make the big point, the big reveal, the mic drop moment that he's been setting himself up for with these two questions. Verse 14, so it is, now the Lord's talking, so it is with this people, not as God says in in other places in the prophets, my people, I'm me, my people, not my people, this people. So it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. What's Haggai saying? For years, Israel has been reluctant to rebuild the temple. They'd carried on making offerings, offering sacrifices, but uh, they'd in many ways obeyed the letter only of their covenant obligations to God. Meanwhile, their hearts were out of alignment with the covenant. They disobeyed God by neglecting the rebuilding of his temple and that disobeying, that objective evidence right out there in the world that they did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. It defiled the offerings they made. It defiled their worship. In fact, it might even be that Haggai is comparing the ruined temple to a corpse which has defiled their worship, their offerings, their sacrifices. When God calls us into his covenant people, he's calling us to pursue our sanctification, our growth in holiness. But we're warned here about the dangers of a mere outward formal holiness. Mere outward holiness, precisely because it flows from a reluctant spirit, actually defiles us. May even be fair to say that outward holiness flowing from a reluctant spirit is even worse than outright unbelief. I mean, think about what Haggai's been saying brushing up against an unbelieving Gentile, bumping into someone. 
That didn't defile anybody. But brushing up against a corpse did. And that's what the Lord is comparing his people to. It's what he's chastising them for. Outright unbelief, the Lord seems to be saying, is preferable to two-faced, merely outward holiness. So remember that as, as you're pursuing personal holiness, God is also calling you to root out a reluctant spirit. And the application here is way more easily said than done. To root out a reluctant spirit, we've got to be people of daily prayer and daily communion with God because a reluctant spirit is not uprooted overnight. It's the Christian's daily work of putting to death our sinful habits and attitudes and laying open our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. To root out a reluctant spirit, we've got to fight the good fight and we've got to do it every day. Because we wake up every day in a spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's vicious, and it's constant. And we fight it how? On our knees. By daily prayer and daily communion with our God. So as you pray, ask God to, to just do this. Ask him to uproot your reluctant spirit. Ask him as David does in Psalm 51, to uphold you with a willing spirit. Remember that God is calling you to root out a reluctant spirit. Now, we've said two critical things about what it means to be God's covenant people. God's calling us to pursue personal holiness, and as we do so, to root out a reluctant spirit. But there's one critical element of this passage left that we've got to touch on. Because without it, an exhortation to holiness is incomplete and even misleading. That remaining element is the motivation. Verse 19. From this day on, the Lord says, I will bless you. As we pursue our own personal holiness, we know that we don't do it in our own strength. For God is calling us in the third place to a great motivation. Not to claim simply this temporal blessing of a harvest, but to claim every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Notice the way that God spurs his people on to obedience through Haggai. It's through the promise of blessing. Now, at first blush, Haggai is proclaiming this temporal blessing, right? Verses 18 and 19, God is going to provide a fruitful harvest after years of, uh, of skimpy harvests. But again, more is happening here. The harvest is a sign that points beyond itself. The point of the harvest is not the harvest. It's the point that the covenant relationship between God and his people has been renewed. God has been reconciled to his people. So it's not the harvest that we're interested in. The harvest points ahead 
to the one who will do the reconciling once and for all between God and his people, who will establish the new covenant. It points ahead to the coming of the Messiah. The thing that dazzles Haggai is not the fields white with harvest. It's the glorious face of Jesus Christ. So as we pursue personal holiness, as we root out a reluctant spirit, remember that these are not achievements that we seek in our own strength. Rather, we we strive for holiness with confidence that God's going to give it to us because he has given and has promised that he would give us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And when Wilson came up and read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, we rehearsed all those spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those spiritual blessings reach into our past and into our present and into our future. They reach into our past. Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has not just called you to holiness. He has eternally and graciously determined to establish you in holiness. So we labor with confidence that our labor is not in vain. These spiritual blessings reach into our present experience. Ephesians 1, verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We can fight the good fight. We can strive for holiness because we are assured that through the blood of Jesus we stand reconciled now with the God of heaven and earth. And these spiritual blessings reach thirdly into the future. Ephesians 1:10. We look forward to that day when God will unite in Christ all things in heaven and on earth. The God from whom we have been severed will be restored to him totally and finally. And we will know face to face the greatest love we've ever known. The promise that Haggai leaves ringing in our ears, is the promise that every one of you who is a member of God's covenant people can pursue the holiness to which God calls you, falter and stumble though you will, because in Christ you possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you can take the risk of pursuing holiness. You can wake up and you can face the spiritual battle because your covenant God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. To those of you who are not in Christ, who are not living stones being built up into a spiritual temple, these promises do not belong to you. If you deny Jesus the throne of your life, you can't expect to enjoy the blessings that he promises to those who endure in serving him faithfully. But listen to Haggai. Consider from this day forward that without these blessings, no one can attain the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
The pursuit of holiness demands our blood and our sweat and our tears. We must struggle constantly for it, but it is not our work. It's God's work. And if you have no share in the blessings by which he does this work, then you cannot expect to find that in the end he will have done it in you. The Lord's mercy is great, even and especially to his weakest servants. But to those who refuse him, his severity is equally great. So I urge you, not tomorrow, not sometime, turn to the Lord with all of your heart. And to those of you who stand among God's covenant people, consider the blessings that he's lavished on you in Christ. Renew your resolve as living stones to be built up into a dwelling place for God. Pursue personal holiness. Root out a reluctant spirit and do so with a confidence that God has bound himself to ensure your success. Let's pray. Father, you called us out of darkness into your glorious light. Let us not languish any longer in the darkness. Give us grace never to rely on our status as your covenant people, but to prove our pedigree by daring to be holy. And so may we bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.